Hello and welcome to the Editor's Highlights podcast for the February 2024 issue of Practical Neurology, the journal of clinical practice written by neurologists for neurologists. A journal so important we have uh, two editors. I'm Phil Smith, I'm a neurologist from Cardiff in Wales. And I'm Garrett Fuller, I'm a neurologist in Gloucester uh, in southwest England. And of course, there are other podcasts linked to this and every edition. So in a few weeks, we'll hear the Editor's Choice paper interview with Amy Ross Russell, who's a trainee from Southampton and our podcast editor. And a few weeks after that, Martin Turner from Oxford will discuss a couple of the best case reports with two neurology trainees, Ruth Wood and Sinyu Tai. And there's also a must-listen bonus podcast on climate change that's already out, uh, and we'll be discussing that paper shortly. Very strongly recommended. So please subscribe on your favourite platform to ensure that you're notified every time we publish a new podcast. So, Geraint, the February issue has got 100 pages packed with gems of neurological and general interest, uh, climate emergency to clinical... Uh, assessment of gait, cognitive behaviour therapy, and our editor's choice is EEG on the ITU, essentially, EEG with encephalitis and encephalopathy. Yes, uh, and very nice. I mean, I think we often wonder if there's a theme in any of our uh, editions, and and we don't actually necessarily put it together as a theme, but often a theme develops. And I think uh, the the linking feature here is, um, as they say on the railways, mind the gap. So we, we've got a number of different uh, papers which are looking at things which uh, we wouldn't necessarily expect to have reviews on. Um, but equally, the moment you think about them and you, the moment you, you realise uh, it's something that actually you, you don't really know that much about. It's a black box and it's worthwhile opening. And uh, the first black box we're opening is the EEG in encephalopathy and encephalitis. So this is something obviously that's done quite widely, but uh, what do we get out of it? What can we get out of it? When should we do it? Uh, and what uh, what do we need to know about it? And Holly Morris, uh, Peter Kaplan, and Nick Kane, um, who have actually uh, had an international um, collaboration between Bristol and Maryland, have taken a very nice pragmatic review, taking you through the evidence um, about what's going on. Now, because Amy Ross Russell is going to be talking about this and interviewing the team on their um, the Editor's Choice podcast, I won't go in any great detail other than uh, to, to, to really just talk about the fact that this is really pragmatic. So you're taking, you've got someone with possible encephalopathy and the question is, well, who should you do the uh, EEG on? Uh, what can you get out of it? And uh, they, they take you through the uh, the range of findings you might find in you know, hepatic encephalopathy. And, and I'm always very pleased when we've actually got extensive illustrations of the EGs uh, in, in the paper, because obviously we, we have lots of images for scans and so on, but actually having imaging from EEG, we, we, it's something we tend to report in, in verbal form rather than looking at them. And in fact, I think a lot of clinicians don't look at them. They just take the reports uh, as read. But being able to actually understand what the waveforms look like um, and to appreciate those which are subtle, those which are relatively unsubtle is quite helpful. So there are quite a range of different things in uh, hepatic encephalopathy, uremia, toxic encephalopathies. These don't tend to produce very specific sets of changes, and there's a very nice table that um, summarises the range of ch- changes that you can see. But it, it hopefully gives people an understanding of the language that's used and when it can be helpful. 
Um, and obviously, the EEG is often a useful clue. It supports, it distinguishes between organic and uh, particularly if you, you're concerned about a psychiatric um, patient, you, you'd be concerned if you found EEG changes that, that it wasn't uh, a psychiatric um, diagnosis. But it, it, it really becomes absolutely sensationally good if someone's got non-convulsive status. And I think if there's a single message to take away from this um, report is that actually one should have... Uh, a relatively low threshold to use EEG if non-convulsive status is within the differential, because clearly this is something which is extremely effective at finding. Yeah. It'll give you some very useful clues. And again, not wishing to go into too much detail, the viral encephalopathies, very often if you've got someone with a very characteristic change that you can see, for example, in uh, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which very often is the thing that draws you to that diagnosis. So there's... A, a very nice range of, of, of really well illustrated EEGs, um, which hopefully will encourage clinicians to go and actually uh, go down to the neurophysiology department and actually look at the EEGs. Yeah. One area which I think is particularly helpful is in the EEG in a patient who's had a hypoxic ischemic injury. And um, prognosticating from the EEG is actually quite hard, but they provide a very nice uh, summary of the range of uh, benign, malignant, and highly malignant changes you can find on EEG, which can be helpful in uh, informing prognostication in that group of patients. So a, a very useful paper, particularly for people who ha perhaps haven't, haven't really considered looking at the EEGs themselves, in a lot of the countries, they'd be very familiar with it. But certainly in the UK, uh, it's something that we would encourage people to do. Yeah. So, so I mean, it, this is a giant paper, isn't it, really? I mean, it's comprehensive. It uh, covers the role of EEG in many sort of important treatable uh, and life-threatening situations. And uh, it's interesting, actually, that EEG is 100 years old this year, 1924, it was uh, Hans Berger who first recorded the human EEG. It had previously been discovered in Liverpool, oddly enough. Richard uh, Caton made the first recordings of EEG. So it's a, it's a very, very old technique. And yet I feel that EEG is just coming of age now. I mean, there's so, so, many, so many exciting changes happening. It's not just the fact that um, uh, we have video with EEG. They're all electronic recordings, of, of course, rather than the paper that used to be but increasingly EEG is becoming a portable thing and uh, there's uh, new developments to make it a long-term monitoring by inserting the leads under the scalp and then they rather like a reveal device for an ECG they can record long term so this is coming shortly and the other big change of course is artificial intelligence it's uh, at the moment it relies on human experts uh, but I think once the EEG can be compared to a thousand normals, you, the machine will be able to identify tiny little changes that uh, maybe could elude even the best experts at present. So I think this is a tool that's going to build and build. The other exciting role for EEG is probably on the intensive care unit. So ITU consultants, intensivists like to monitor every organ, the, the kidney, the heart, the chest and so forth. But uh, 
now I think they're in now going to be able to monitor the the brain as well because uh, these um, this ability to do longer term monitoring uh, and report it by AI is is going to be um, a development over the next uh, few years. Phil, Phil, dangerous ground. You're you're you're, you're moving you're moving into the future. Um, obviously, practical knowledge. We, we we don't trade in the future. We know all these wonderful things might be there. I think obviously we want to make sure that the focus is on really where we are now and what we can offer. And I think everything you say is obviously true and hopeful for the future. But I think knowing when to use EG in the current context is probably uh, the secret. So we've got yeah, all those things to okay. look forward to. Yeah, I, t- I take that on board, actually. I mean, and, and I'm always learning, and I learned some new abbreviations this time. I learned TURDA and FURDA. These are the temporal and frontal intermittent rhythmic delta activity. So the, these are terms we're going to need to get to know more if we're to help people on ITUs. Uh, the other thing I was interested in is this this um, extreme delta brush, which is the characteristic, the pathognomonic EEG feature of NMDA-related encephalitis. And I just wondered why, why why such a curious name, and I looked it up and uh, tried to get through ChatGPT, and it just seems that the word extreme simply means very rare, you know. So we deal in neurology with a lot of extreme situations in that case. So it just means that it looks like a, a brush. I think it rather looks more like a comb actually uh, on the delta wave, and it's extremely rare. That seems to be the best I can do, unless any listener knows why they. Uh, are using this curious adjective of extreme, but it's very catchy, isn't it? And, and we uh, uh, we all remember it. I think it's quite a long brush, isn't that the idea? Because it's quite because you can have a short brush and an extreme. Is I th- I've always taken. Oh, well, right. Right, readers will write in and correct us. We're looking forward to that. <laughs> write in or or even or even tweet in or whatever. Yeah. Oh goodness knows. Our next paper is, um, again, opening another black box, which is looking at cognitive behavioral therapy for neurologists. Again, something we probably talk about and mention and and think about uh, without really knowing the nuts and bolts. And uh, Biba Stanton, uh, Trudy Chalder, Carolina Cavavolo have written a very nice paper. And and you're going to take us through this, Phil. Yeah, so this is um, King's College Hospital in London. And uh, I mean, the cognitive behaviour therapy is something we all hear about. It's uh, something that we uh, know is used for the first-line treatment of depression. But it's uh, there a bit on the edge of what neurologists do, I think. And, and really, that is going to have to change, that neurologists are mostly comfortable with the medical model of diagnosis and giving treatments. And we're a bit less comfortable, or maybe we've got less time to deliver treatment of symptom management of distress and emotional suffering, anxiety, depression. And yet, these things are often the bigger picture. Uh, For example, uh, many neurological conditions are associated with depression. And uh, MS, 30% probably. Post, we, we had a paper last year about post-stroke depression and probably 30% of people after a stroke have depression. Very understandable. And sometimes the depression is part of the neurological illness, Parkinson's disease, for example, the dopamine deficiency and epilepsy. It may be exacerbated by some of the treatment. So lots of depression about and yet these needs are not being met. So uh, what do we need to know about CBT then, cognitive behaviour therapy? Well, it's really that it's 
a vicious cycle, it seems to me, of this, this, uh, these three components, the subjective fear, you know, think, oh my goodness, I'm going to have a seizure at work. Uh, the physiological reactivity, that's the palpitation, the stress symptoms and the worry, and the avoidance behavior. You sort of avoid seeing friends, you avoid going out, you take time off work. And it's those three things, the fear, the physiology reaction and the avoidance that uh, fuel one another in a vicious cycle. And what people need to know is to uh, is really to understand how that is working for them to their detriment. So CBT is normally delivered as a highly structured, time-limited thing, usually one-to-one by a CBT specialist, but uh, it can be in groups. And it's usually an hour every two weeks, sort of 12 sessions or so, something like that. And th- it's really exploring the content of people's thoughts. Uh, there is another, another step, and that is the third wave, treatment mindfulness etc where it's noting that it's one's relationship with those thoughts and feelings that's important not actually their content i mean how do we uh what do we think about these thoughts and feelings that are making us um uh, behave like this so no we're aiming particularly to treat depression anxiety and fatigue probably depression i've said very very common anxiety understandably common particularly in things like epilepsy which are intermittent and just make you feel insecure all of the time and fatigue i mean there's a new emphasis with long covid on fatigue but uh, fatigue very very common in multiple sclerosis and stroke probably in a, up to 80 percent and uh so who should we refer for this? Well, in fact, I, I understand in England you refer to the talking therapist team. In Wales, we don't seem to have quite that service and maybe elsewhere in the world that it's uh, uh, a bit more limited. But um, the neurologist's role in this really is perhaps as the gatekeeper, maybe. They need to be sure that someone who's referred for CBT firstly has to be willing to work collaboratively with a therapist to talk about coping strategies etc secondly they've got to be motivated to make changes that that would manage the symptoms and thirdly they've got to be able to commit the time to do it regularly so the other thing that the team also talk about Bieber and the team talk about is the the what neurologists can just do in day-to-day how to use some of the CBT techniques in their daily work and she says, well, yeah, we may think we don't do very much when we follow up people with long-term conditions unless we actually change the, the medication or something. But actually, just chatting to people to follow-ups and talking about things, that, little things they might be able to do, sleep routines, that sort of thing, setting small goals that sort of are commensurate with their aim. So you know, what is important to that patient, going to see friends, going for a walk, that sort of thing, helping them to set small aims and uh, build those routines is partly CBT. And so that, that can uh, be a practical in, um, application of this. So I do like the paper. I, I, I really welcome it. I'm, I like, I'm pleased I know, now know more about CBT through having read it and some helpful diagrams in there to say how it's all working. But uh, will, will you be using this guy in your practice, do you think? I mean, I think all of us use uh, CBT, and I, I think it, it's just a, a nice to have the box opened to, to unpack the mysteries. Um, and, I, and I think 
the translation of some of the elements into clinical practice within the clinic, the, your everyday conversations. Um, it, again, it's it's quite useful to think about that, 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 that that's what you're actually doing, because a lot of the time you're doing these sorts of things, but without consciously being aware that what you're doing is reframing the problem to allow people to look at the, the, the issue in a different way. Um, so no, I think, it's, I think it's a very nice paper, and hopefully will be widely read and used. Yeah, I mean, so much of it is common sense. Uh, as, uh, and uh, I, I think the message I'm getting, though, is that although there are lots of things that we can do sort of psychologically to help people, the one where there's the best evidence for neurology is CBT. And uh, so this should probably be the first port of call. You know, we can, we can do all sorts of other things as well, and we probably should be. But, um, you know, this is, this is evidence-based, and neurologists like evidence. So the, the next paper then is another big one, actually, Neurological Gait Assessment. And this is by the, a, a team from Brazil, but uh, headed up also by Diego Caski from um, UCL in London. And this is, a, this is a giant paper again, covering a huge field of something really important to us. And so, Garrett, you've been having a look at the Gait Assessment paper. Yeah, so this is another a black box to open because obviously, uh, you know, gait assessment is an essential part of the assessment for many patients with neurological disease. And I think it just bears for, uh, being the focus of, of attention to, to actually try and work out what one's doing in assessing gait and to try and dissect what's gone on. And, and um, the paper is is constructed in a very nice this sort of discursive style. It, it talks about the approach to examination. Um, it, very much encourages you to go and get your patient from the waiting room so you can walk, watch them walk in. In fact, it says you shouldn't just watch them walk in, you should watch them how they get out of the chair, how they initiate their gait, uh, the getting up and sitting down. Um, I, I'm sure you'll have been familiar with patients, for example, with PSP, who seem to get up in a very uh, dramatic way, which they refer to as the rocket sign. So, um, you know, you, you watch them come in, and then uh, when you, you actually, obviously... Um, uh, analyzing their gait, it's, it's worthwhile looking at the different elements. And um, you've got one leg, which is the stance phase, which is the one on the ground. And then you have the swing phase, which is the leg which is actually moving. And uh, it's worthwhile looking at those two things, and they do slightly different things. Uh, they dissect what you're going to, to try and look at, the symmetry, um, uh, the ability to, to initiate gait, the, the way in which the ankle's moving, how high the knee lifts. So they, they take you through all the elements that I would hope that neurologists uh, um, are familiar with and indeed teach the medical students with. It's really, you know, very, very nice and full of sort of little gems. So, for example, the, the warming up phenomenon that you can see in some myotonic um, syndrome. So when people, so you get them up and you start them walking and they do slightly better as they go along. A few manoeuvres to, to actually throw in. So the idea of walking on your heels and your toes, which obviously bring out slightly different facets. And they also talk about distraction, highlighting the fact that a lot of organic syndromes will tend to get worse uh, with distraction, whereas fa functional gait syndromes um, will tend to improve uh, with appropriate uh, uh, distraction. So we've got a very nice sort of overall uh, approach to, you know, how do you think about these things? And then they go through a series of gait patterns, uh, highlighting things which actually, um, uh, you know, you can, will allow you to, to shortcut the whole thing. And 
and some of these will feel very familiar to neurologists, you know, the, the foot drop, the high stepping gait associated with uh, uh, either a common perineal or an L5 or a peripheral neuropathy. But there's very nice uh, discussion of that. And, and then really extensive links to Visios. I think there are 14 attached videos which are on the, on the website. So you can actually look at really nice examples of these different patterns of gait. They talk about spasticity. And again, I think neurologists will be very familiar with that. And the, the rather harder uh, and a much rarer gait disturbance that you can get with stiff person syndrome, the Frankenstein or robotic gait with this very stiff um, person. So those are very nice examples. And they highlight the fact that a lot of the time, um, the stiff person gait can be mistakenly uh, thought to be functional because of its rather unusual pattern. They then have a very nice section on the extra pyramidal gait disturbances. And uh, they've got a nice uh, table which actually highlights the different syndromes which you can, uh, and a gait pattern that you can see in the different ways. So, you know, the, the, the size of the steps, the arm swing, the uh, ability, and they, they highlight the use of a tandem gait. So walking uh, as if you're on a tightrope and how, how many times within a 10 step uh, tandem gait you fall and the way in which you fall and how that can be usefully predictive. Um, they, they highlight one very nice feature, uh, um, a paper from uh, the Parkinson's Brain Bank, which is now uh, relatively old, but it uh, talks about the, the time to fall. So that in progressive supranuclear palsy, it takes uh, 16.8 months from symptom onset to first fall, 42 months for MSA, 54 for dementia with Lewy bodies, and 108 months with Parkinson's disease. So in a, quite a useful uh, mental uh, timetable or timeline to think about these different conditions. So uh, they, they talk about those the different elements of the gait disturbance. And so I think uh, that's a particularly useful set of um, differentials that you can really get at by looking at um, the gait. Then they've got a nice uh, summary of, of the two, what they refer to as too much movement. So dystonic and choreiform uh, gait disturbances, which uh, obviously can often be problem and highlight the, the difficulty with patients with Huntington's disease and the often extremely uh, erratic and variable gait, which can often be um, uh, mislabeled as being uh, non-organic. And then they give a very nice description of the gait apraxia of the various subcortical syndromes, again, being very familiar with those things. They, they talk about uh, gait uh, ataxia. And in fact, I was rather anticipating a, uh, a, um, a greater emphasis from uh, Diego Kasky and his group, who was the, um, uh, the problems of bilateral vestibular failure. I mean, they obviously emphasize that the commonest pattern of a gait, sensory gait ataxia is relating to proprioceptive deficit. But obviously, bilateral vestibular failure can be very uh, dis disabling from that perspective. And they've actually got a very nice uh, figure which illustrates how to do the head thrust test to allow you to uh, identify that phenomenon. Um, they talk about the functional gait disturbance. And uh, I mean, this is something we're going to be revisiting with um, some papers in the next few editions, because clearly the gait disorders that you can see in patients with functional disease do have a particular pattern attached to them. The dragging of the legs, the um, um, improvement with distraction, uh, the uh, biologically implausible way, for example, someone might walk on flexed knees and so on. So 
I think, a very nice overall discussion. And, and whilst clearly it's going to be very helpful for trainees, and I think I would point um, uh, early, very junior trainees to read it as a, as a rich resource, I think even the more experienced neurologists will find that there's something here that's of interest and uh, will allow them to look at things in a slightly different way. Thank so, you, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's such. I mean, it, it got me thinking. You know that we take walking for granted, don't we? We do our ten thousand steps a day, and yet it's a really complex and dynamic process, and it involves integration of neurological and musculoskeletal processes. Uh, you know, all the systems: pyramidal, extrapyramidal, peripheral nerves, cerebellum, special senses cortex or and yet some of it can be musculoskeletal some of it uh, some problems with gait may not be neurological at all and we need to think about that as neurologists so it's of interest to all physicians probably actually uh, especially to care of the elderly physicians because so many older people as they develop frailty develop problems with their walking and gait and it needs sorting out really for individuals why they have those problems what aspects of them are treatable you've highlighted quite a few of the gems that are in there i mean it's full of them isn't it but uh they uh, will talk about you know walking backwards is easier than walking forwards in conditions like treatment related dyskinesia of parkinson's disease uh, but also in functional illness as well. And that if you perform a concurrent task at the same you know, same time as doing something else, then this might well improve functional gait. But it can also improve walking in dystonic gait, uh, the so-called geste antagoniste, where just touching your hair or touching your neck can improve the gait. So that's easily mislabeled as functional if we're not careful. And uh, a couple of other things I picked up. Scissoring of gait is might point to GLUT1 deficiency syndrome or the career of Huntington's disease as well, uh, as well as being from uh, pyramidal involvement of the legs. So it can, it, those things can be a catch occasionally too. So, yeah, I like, I like the paper very much. Uh, something I was going to ask you about, Geraint, um, in the teenager clinic, I was taught by Sheila Wallace, a paediatric neurologist, to do a fog test. And a fog test is where you get the patient to walk on the outside of their uh, feet and then to walk on the inside of the feet. And you're looking at their arms because if they've got a very mild cerebral palsy, then they their arm will flex. I don't know if that's something you've you've used but i can't find any reference to fog testing uh on the internet apart from freezing of gate testing that's what it seems to come out. i don't know who dr fog was or whether you've ever heard of him uh no that's a new one on me but but i think um it's sort of this it's a stressed gate so i mean it's you know um, you can stress the gate in a number of different ways you know walking on tiptoes or heels would have a similar sort of distractive element yeah, prob- probably would. I, I mean, I think on a on a sort of slightly parallel, one of the interesting things about looking at gait is that you're looking at a complicated integration of function. And it obviously it's worthwhile remembering it's not the only thing. It's the one we use all the time. But speech has a similar pattern. So that's a complicated integration of um, f- frontal, um, extrapyramidal, cerebellar. Um, mechanical and neuromuscular. So, you, you know, you've got that same sort of hierarchy of potential effects and actually doing other things, writing and other uh, sort of stereotype and plan movements. So it's it's worthwhile almost thinking about those types of problems and, and chopping them up in a similar way to um, what um, Diego and his team have, have done for gait. 
uh, yeah. in, in making sense of that. Actually, I, I was slightly surprised actually by the falls in PSP, which I'd always believed were just backwards, really, because of cervical dystonia and difficulty looking down. But they tell us actually the direction of falls is not diagnostically helpful. You know, obviously, as you mentioned, in PSP, you can get this sort of reckless behaviour of, of you know, getting up incredibly quickly, the rocket sign, which, which makes you very vulnerable to falling, you think. I, I would suggest that, I mean, and of course, so many patients with PSP have broken noses and, and yeah. wrists and everything else. It's not just backwards, it's every which way, Paul. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, so we then move on to a, a, a really super big subject, which is obviously climate change and uh, practical advice for neurologists. Who, who would have thought we had practical advice for neurologists? Phil, you're talking about this. Yeah, well, again, uh, this is the subject of a podcast, a bonus podcast that we arranged to coincide with the COP28 meeting at the end of November so it's been out for a while now and really this is a this is a brilliant podcast I mean it's uh, this is Sanjay Sisodaya who's a neurologist epilepsy specialist at uh, UCL and really Sanjay is so articulate uh, and has got a wonderful sort of calming voice he's delivering a message about the end of the world but paradoxically he does so in a calm almost reassuring voice uh, it, 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 is, it is amazing and this podcast would not be out of place on Radio 4 I think and what what um, what Sanjay has done here is to bring the message of climate change to neurologists, but it, it wouldn't normally fit into practical neurology. It's, it's it's the business of everybody, of course. We should all be concerned by the climate emergency, but uh, he's backed it onto a paper about the effects of heat on brain function and other functions in the neurological system, which, of course, in the context of the whole of climate change is infinitesimally tiny aspect of it but uh, by by putting it that way he's able to uh, bring the message of climate change to us and it is a frightening frightening message he he points to the fact that um carbon dioxide concentrations have been stable for 800,000 years at around about 200 to 250 parts per million. And then just in the last 50 years in particular, but certainly since the Industrial Revolution, it has doubled to 420 parts per million. Uh, I'm reminded of the uh, a slide I saw from Sir Patrick Valance at doing the Harverian lecture in a few weeks ago. He showed this slide, and, it, and the bit where it suddenly shoots up looks like an arrow pointing to a certain part of the slide. But no, it it is the graph suddenly taking off, and this is from data of. Uh, uh, air captured in ice over the last um, 800,000 years and it just shows this dramatic change and Sanjay makes a wonderful metaphor I think he he says well if hydrogen ion concentration in our body were suddenly doubled from 40 to 80 what difference would that make? And the difference it would make is that our pH would fall from 7.4 to 7.1. We'd be in stupor. We'd be on in ventilators. It, you know, the, the you know we've made this change to one tiny component of the Earth's atmosphere, but it's going to have an immense, immense, uh, catastrophic outcome. So, uh, I'm just reminded by this of. 
the cognitive dissonance with which we are all uh, living now that we um we're, we're just carrying on our normal lives aren't we we're we're unaware uh, day-to-day living of of a big change in the climate that's all around us we, we we hear of disasters on the news but our lives just carry on as before and yet we are heading towards this brink and uh, you know we we sort of uh, try to cut down on this and try to you know d- eat greener and this sort of thing and then we might still book a flight uh, and uh, contribute further to climate change so I like the way Sanjay finishes the paper, almost Churchillian in his call to arms. He says, to live the lives we want to live, we have to change the lives we're leading. And uh, and I, I think it, it's, um, it's just a sobering thought. We need constantly to be reminded of, um, of what is happening to our climate. And as neurologists, he gives us some some advice on the things we can do, but it's mostly about raising awareness and uh, mostly about you know, making sure our patients uh, uh, are um, doing the things that we would like to do as well. There's a lot in the paper also, perhaps I should have mentioned, about what the, the body's uh, reaction to heat and you know he does mention um, thing he, he, a lot about Drave syndrome, for example. He's a real expert on that, and uh, how SCN1A, the sodium channel, re- responds to heat, and hence you get febrile seizures and so forth in that condition. He mentions topiramate and zinnosamide that reduce sweating and make you hotter. But these things, I think, are just a vehicle to get this paper into practical neurology, and I'm delighted it's there. So, Phil, I, I would take a slightly different view. I mean, I think, you know, you can read about climate science left, right and centre. And as uh, Sanjay says, he's not a climate scientist. But I, I think the the key issue here is that this is a link between the theory and the practice. And the practice being the fact that patients, uh, you know, particularly with these heat sensitive issues, given more extreme temperatures, people have to work out what to do about it. And uh, a lot of the time, parents of patients with Dravet, for example, are already doing different things to try and um, to mitigate the effect of high temperature. So so I I think whilst, you know, there is clearly a call to arms, there's also an attempt to try and bring it down to the um, everyday practice. Oh, yeah, I I wouldn't for a moment demean the problems that someone with Dravet syndrome has. It's a rare condition, one in 15,000 or something. And those people are going definitely to to suffer from the uh, heat changes much more than other people. Uh, It's just just, I, I feel that we need to get messages about climate change into into every journal and the bmj try have tried to do that actually they put in a a editorial into many uh, of the journals but we chose instead to go with this much more bespoke neurological focus on uh, climate change with the associated podcast so um yeah I, um all, all, all for ways of, of getting the messages to neurologists and we thought we would just finish off by discussing uh, the neurology book clubs and the book club reports that we have. And part of the reason for doing that is that we we do want to encourage more places to run book clubs, simply for the, for their various benefits. So, uh, Phil, for what do you what do you take away from the Cardiff book club? Because you've been going for some time. Yeah, well, I mean, we we started book clubs in 2013. I mean, uh, it was uh, it was something that Marty Samuels had been doing in Boston for a while, and uh, 
you know, reading is, of course, a fairly solitary activity. And the chance to discuss the contents of a book with people who've also read it is is a really lovely thing to do. I mean, I often go to book club meetings, having not particularly enjoyed the book, uh, and come away with understanding new depths about it and wanting to to read it again um it it's a great thing to do and the the model in cardiff that we have stuck with is we sort of choose the book by consensus among the regulars uh i buy 25 books from endowment funds and distribute them to people in the department and it's the discussion is hosted at a consultant's house um uh, difficult sometimes to get people to come. Uh, I mail 80 people uh, about a month before, a week before, and then a day before. And, um, you know, we, we get some junior doctors along who, uh, and then we tempt them by asking them to, to write a, uh, a report on the book club meeting for, for, the, for the journal. But uh, it's, you know, it, until they've been to one or two, they perhaps don't realise quite the, how good an experience it is. Practical tips on hosting. Well, anyone arriving at someone's house maybe just think that all there is to it is setting out a few chairs and sticking on some pasta. But uh, actually, the major challenge, as you probably know, Geraint, is that you don't know whether you're going to get six or 16. And therefore, you know, catering can be um, a a little bit challenging. Uh, Best probably to have vegan food these days, uh, then it suits everybody. Otherwise, you've got to cook two meals, have it boiling in the corner so you it can serve it at any time you like and uh, you know and you have to put aside at least an afternoon of tidying hoovering and cleaning the toilet and all this sort of thing practical tips on the book club discussion well uh it's good if people sort of mark pages with colored post-it stickers i think to say you know to 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 know what to quote we try to hear from the trainees first if they've come along but it tends to be a sort of core group of consultants who read the book and keen to discuss it and we're very keen always to know how the book reflects certain aspects of neurology. You know, what are the practical changes you might put in place having having read this? Uh, and then, of course, as we know, when you write up the report in the in practical neurology, it's different from a book club review, isn't it? It's a report. It's like the minutes of a meeting, really. Uh, what was said at the meeting and uh, what neurologists said about this book. So. How does it work for you? I, I would take issue that it's like the minutes because clearly it's meant to be entertaining and interesting as opposed to... Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe your meetings you go to are rather more exciting than the ones minutes. I attend. <laughs> you love a minute. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously models are different. We have a, um, a smaller department, so we actually get um, perhaps between 10 and 15, perhaps. Uh, but by and large, because we give them very good food, um, people have to commit in advance. Otherwise, um, the, the catering does falls down. And and I, I have to say, we, we do try and encourage everyone to come along by by, by providing good food and and uh, um, refreshment. Otherwise, and uh, but I think it, it, the, the thing that strikes me is not just about the book; it's also about the department. So you know, you're t- you you have a completely external thing that you're all discussing you 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 meet with your colleagues and uh, the members of the team and you'll be discussing various things but this is discussing an entirely neutral uh, issue you know you're discussing the book which you're all bringing different things to and everyone's uh, thoughts and comments of it are are as valid as anyone else and it's a really interesting and I think a very rewarding way to to link up and uh, improve the way in which your team works because you have this common 
set of experiences which is outside the hierarchy, which very often exists in medicine. Yeah, so so I mean, I, I can see actually in a small department, and I have worked in small departments that that actually you'd almost be noticed by your absence, wouldn't you? You'd say, well, you know, where where's that particular SHO tonight? And uh, you know, it's part of the day's work almost to come to book club. And in our currently bigger department, we have neurosurgeons, we have people from the Gwent Hospital as well, we we have neurophysiologists, and you know they're all on the invite list, uh, and it's very much up to them if they want to come and, and join in, and uh, um, a few do, and really get a lot from it. Um, we, we, what, what, one of, I, was, I was just going to tell about one of my techniques to, uh, no, I, I won't tell you, oh, it's okay, I will. Uh, one of our techniques is to um, get someone to reply to all accidentally saying yes i'd love to come can i can i bring a pudding and this sort of thing and uh, (laughs) that actually sends a much stronger message than someone deliberately replying to all saying no i can't come that's a very very bad thing to happen Excellent. So the secret is out. We'll all now know if someone's bringing a pudding to Phil's book club. So um, we would just so we would encourage uh, people to try and do it. And obviously, we're very happy to consider any book club reports. Uh, if you do manage to have a book club, um, really to share your experience and uh, to encourage people to come along. Yeah. So I hope you've all enjoyed that uh, discussion as much as we have, and hope it'll tempt you to read some of the papers in the journal uh, in more depth and um, you can leave a review on this and on other podcasts or perhaps better still let us hear your comments uh, or ways of improving this and the other podcasts so all the podcasts actually relating to this and past issues are available on spotify apple or whatever uh, platform you choose to get your podcast from And, uh, of course, uh, Amy Ross Russell will be talking to Nick Kane and colleagues about the EEG paper that we've already discussed. She'll be doing that in much more depth. And there is, of course, the Climate Change podcast already referred to with Sanjay Sisodaya uh, available to be listened to as well. So thank you all very much for listening. Enjoy your reading. And goodbye from me, Phil Smith. And uh, goodbye from me, Garrett Fuller.